Hello and welcome to episode three of Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Tour program podcast, where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Yuka Kushino, research fellow for Japanese security and defense policy. And I'm Robert Ward, the IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy. We are delighted to have with us today as our guest, Dr. Sanjaya Baru, who joins us from Delhi in India. Sanjaya has had the most extraordinarily varied career. So I'm just going to pick out some highlights, which include a stint as media advisor to Prime Minister Manmohan Singh in 2004 to 2008, a member of the National Security Advisory Board of India in 1999 to 2001, a member of the Indian National Defence University Committee in 2002 to 2000. Sanjay, I'm pleased to say, also enjoys long association with the IISS and was uh, one of my predecessors, actually, in my geoeconomics role when he was Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy from 2011 to 2016. But the reason that we've invited Sanjay to join us today is because of his expertise on Japan, of course. And Sanjay's association with Japan is particularly noteworthy. He was part of an Indian Track 2 delegation that went to Tokyo in 1998 to explain the background to India's becoming a nuclear power. Japan had imposed economic sanctions on India, of course, although it subsequently withdrew them. And Sanjay also helped to facilitate the first meeting between Abe Shinzo and Prime Minister Singh in 2006. This was before Abe became Prime Minister and was Chief Cabinet Secretary at the time. As those of you that know Japan and India will know, India was also the place where Abe gave his Confluence of the Two Seas speech, which was one of the early iterations of what later became Japan's free and open Indo-Pacific policy. So Sanjay has a small role to play in the genesis of this policy. And finally, Sanjay is also a prolific columnist and author and has written on a variety of issues, including Indian politics and geopolitics, with books on Manmohan Singh and Prime Minister Narashima Rao. His latest book, A New Cold War, Henry Kissinger and the Rise of China, which he co-edited with Rahul Sharma, marks the 50th anniversary of Kissinger's historic visit to China, which he says in the book, redefined China-US relations and the global balance of power. I've just downloaded it and it is an excellent read, so highly recommended. Sanjaya, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robert. Thank you, IISS. It's great to be back on a IISS platform. Fantastic to have you on board, Sanjaya. If we can start with Japan-India bilateral relations, obviously critical for FOIP, critical for Japan's view of the Indo-Pacific more broadly. In July of this year, Prime Minister Modi called Japan one of the most trusted friends of India today in both strategic and economic spheres, adding that uh, India's friendship with Japan is considered one of the most natural partners in the entire region. It's been about 20 years, I think, since the two countries announced a global partnership and 15 since Prime Minister Singh and Prime Minister Abe announced a global and strategic partnership. But how do you assess the bilateral relationship today and, and how do you think it's grown? over the past two decades? The architect of current uh, India-Japan bilateral relationship, in my view, is uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, or Abe Shinzo, as the Japanese call him. I give him enormous credit for understanding the significance of the relationship. Because if you look at the period before that, we went through a lot of uh, uncertainty in in the bilateral equation. In fact, you know, it's very interesting, Robert, that the Indian national movement, our struggle for freedom, from British rule, Japan was an inspiration for us because Japan was seen as the first Asian country that defeated a European power when Japan defeated Russia in 1905. And the Indian national leadership, I mean, tall figures like Swami Vivekananda, Rabindranath Tagore, very tall Indian figures 
drew attention of the Indian people to Japan's modernization, Japan's industrialization, and held up Japan as a symbol for India, of you know, for symbol for imitation. I mean, today a lot of Asians think of China as a symbol of development, but actually for us, Japan was. And yet the Cold War disrupted that. Uh, even though India was one of the first countries to recognize modern Japan after the war, the Cold War uh, really disrupted that relationship. And even after the end of the Cold War, it took an entire decade for Japan to focus on India. In fact, till 2002, China received more bilateral aid from Japan than India. It's only in the year 2003 that India began to get more aid than, than China. But the dramatic change in the India-Japan relationship, I believe, begins with Shinzo Abe. His speech to the Indian parliament, which you mentioned in August 2007, and we are now what uh, celebrating his 15th anniversary this month, was historic. It uh, drew attention to this foundation of a long-term relationship and, in fact, underscored the point that Japan is a natural ally for India. And the word natural is significant. Because it's not just your neighbor's neighbor, which is what Japan and India are, and that intermediate neighbor is China, and therefore China's rise is the kind of geopolitical uh, backdrop. But I think it, it is also that there are several synergies, and since you are now uh, heading the geoeconomics pro- program, uh, you recognize the geoeconomic synergies. Japan is an exporting power, uh, India is a big market. Japan is technologically way ahead of most of Asian economies. India desperately needs technology. Japan is an aging country. India is a young country and, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, a lot of geoeconomic synergies that make this geopolitical relationship a very, very interesting one. So the, the synergies, I think, are obviously really, really interesting. But I wonder how reliable do you think a partner India will be for Japan? The reason I'm asking is, again, with the geoeconomics hat on, Japan had big hopes for India to join RCEP, for example, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership mega trade deal that uh, in which China is now the largest economy. Japan had wanted India in there as a sort of balancer to uh, Chinese influence, but obviously for for various reasons, some of which are understandable, uh, India sto- chose to stand back. How reliable do you think India can be as a partner, given the, the political is- situation in India, given the economic um, structural issues in India? How much can Japan bank on India being there? Till Abe came along, the question was very much on Indian minds. How reliable is Japan? I remember even in the brief period when Prime Minister Abe stepped down and he was replaced by, I think, Fukuda, Prime Minister Fukuda. And then there was a succession of two or three Prime Ministers before Prime Minister Abe returned. I was uh, at that time still with Dr. Manmohan Singh in the government. And we saw a dramatic change. The kind of vision that Prime Minister Abe brought to the relationship was not there in his two successors. It required Abe to return and re iterate Japanese interest in India. So actually, the the question was very much on our minds. In fact, in the 1990s, when Japan was giving more aid to China than it was giving to India, and South Korea emerged as a major investor in India, uh, competing with Japan. Uh, You know, uh, the 90s, I used to go to Tokyo quite often uh, and to speak at events, and I would tell my Japanese audience, look, I mean, you're being overtaken by South Korea and India. 
Why are you neglecting India? So I think the question of trust was very much on our minds. But what we have seen in the last 10 years, two different Indian prime ministers, Manmohan Singh and Narendra Modi, uh, and Abe being the link, the bridge. And of course, now we have Mr. Suga as prime minister. I think there is a change. There's a fundamental change. There is still a road to travel. You know, recently, an Indian think tank did an opinion poll in India, which showed that the level of trust, Indians trusted the U.S. the most, followed by Australia, Russia, U.K., and Japan was at sixth place, uh, which surprised me. I would have imagined that Japan would be much higher on that trust list, uh, which means the Japanese have to do more to win over Indian trust, as I guess Indians have to. I mean, you mentioned RCEP. RCEP, in my judgment, of course, I've been personally opposed to India's decision. I've, I've criticized India's decision in my columns. But I think India's reason was defensive. We saw RCEP as a method through which China was seeking to enter Indian markets. And, and therefore, it was really a defensive response to an aggressive China than in any way aimed at, at snubbing Japan or any of the other RCEP member countries. Two questions then arising from what you've just said. The point about Japan needing to be reliable too, I think that's an excellent point. What do you think Japan needs to do to prove to India that it is reliable and sort of move move itself up that list uh, from sick to a bit of a higher position? And the second point is, do you think that India will at some point join uh, RCEP, RCEP? The second question is easy. I do think India is already reconsidering its decision. I mean, I see a change in India's attitude towards foreign trade. Uh, We are now renegotiating uh, free trade agreements with the UK, with Australia. We have decided to also look at free trade agreements with the European Union. This government, the Modi government, had earlier criticized Japan and South Korea, saying that they had taken more advantage of our FTA than that India had. But I think that is beginning to change. So I think Indian trade policy is at the moment uh, changing. And therefore, I won't be surprised if we take a second look at RC. On the first question of what Japan needs to do, I think the interesting change in the India-Japan relationship as a consequence of Prime Minister Abe is what we call the 2 plus 2 equation, which is that the relationship is no longer only about economics or business or about political relations but defense and economy and political relations. And, and, and the two plus two dialogue between the defense and foreign ministers has become an, an annual institution. The effort of both India and Japan to arrive at a wider framework, an economic and business framework, a geopolitical framework, and a defense and security framework, I think that is going to change the nature of the relationship. Because till, till I would say, till the late 90s, I mean, till the turn of the century, uh, Japan would not even talk about nuclear issues, talk about defense issues, talk about strategy, security, nothing. These are not subjects we talked about. It was all about business. It's all about exporting to Indian market. That has changed. We now talk about regional security. We are members of Quad. We do military exercises. Uh, and therefore, there is a much greater defense uh, synergy between the defense, the economic, and the political relationship. Probably that's one reason why Prime Minister Modi recently said uh, Japan is one of the most trusted friends of India today.
Before we move on to the defence issues, and we're going to talk about Quad, of course, just to focus uh, one last time on, on the business side, India is the number one recipient of Japanese ODA, according to Japanese data. Infrastructure projects um, have re- featured pretty heavily uh, in Japan-India relations too. A couple of questions uh, related to this. How are Japanese investments perceived uh, in India uh, particularly given the, the, the trend towards self-resilience to trying to, to make in India policy of Modi uh, and, and so on. How, how are Japanese investments perceived? And do you think that uh, Japan-India relations will be continued to be characterized uh, by an emphasis on infrastructure investment? Indeed, yes. Modi's Make in India program has not taken off. There's a new thinking now on trade policy because his attempt at pursuing a more inward-looking industrial strategy has just not worked. It's seven years into office. There's no turnaround uh, in the economy. The Indian economy has been hit badly, not just by COVID, but by a range of uh, challenges. And therefore, I think India is now, the government is seriously looking at at stepping up investment. And certainly Japan will be an extremely important partner. Japan, in fact, is seen very favorably in India, the kind of investment it's made. For example, the Delhi Metro, what you call the underground in London. Uh, the Delhi Metro is funded by, the, by Japan. The two high-speed train projects are being funded by Japan. Major road networks are being funded by Japan. So Japan is now uh, investing a lot in infrastructure, in projects that are popular. The Metro project, for example, every city in India now wants a Metro project. The, the Delhi underground or the Metro has proved to be a great success for the rest of India to imitate. So I think that the infrastructure story is is positive and going to be even more positive in the future. As far as manufacturing is concerned, I think there Japan faces a competition, as I mentioned, for example, in the automobile sector. Uh, Suzuki was the first foreign company to come into India, into the automobile sector. There were no Volkswagen, there was no Audi, there were no American cars, and certainly there were no Korean cars. But today, Toyota and Suzuki compete with Hyundai and uh, Japanese, Korean and German and, and, and American and, and Chinese. Now, MG Motors is now a Chinese company. So there's tremendous competition. And therefore, I keep telling my Japanese business uh, audiences that you need to understand how to co- work in this very, very competitive market because in the past they've been used to a preferential treatment which I don't think now they will get any longer given the kind of uh, competition other countries are posing. I think another important area of kind of economic cooperation uh, between Japan and India is in the digital domain, including 5G, Internet of Things, and AI. And earlier this year, we've seen an MOU on between the two countries to enhance cooperation in the fields of 5G, telecom security, submarine um, cables in islands of India, even spectrum management, smart cities, and even in areas like disaster management and public safety. And it seems like India has been struggling to even allocate the 5G spectrum. We've seen years of delays. And also, it seems like a geopolitical environment, like the border clashes between India and China, has kind of shifted India's thinking to um, either ban you know, Chinese providers or mobile apps um, from, from the country. What are India's challenges for its digital connectivity goals? And what roles do you think Japan could play to support them? India has lots of challenges. It's not an easy place to do business in. You know, I used to be Secretary General of a major business organization uh, in this country. And I used to always say to people that Indian businessmen are as frustrated as any foreign businessman 
doing business in India. And I think the Japanese have taken time to understand that because when, when the Koreans started taking over many markets, I think they realized that even though this is a difficult market to do business in, they need to focus and that is happening. But having said that, I think the foundation of the India-Japan relationship going forward will be high technology. In fact, it's very interesting that uh, when the change in the relationship began after the 1998 nuclear test, Prime Minister Mori met Prime Minister Vajpayee, I think in the year 2000. And that was the beginning of the new millennium. And the joint statement that the two prime ministers wrote at the beginning of the 21st century was of a century-long strategic partnership based on this Japanese strength in technology, uh, in the knowledge economy, and India's desperate need for technology and assets in the knowledge economy. Each of the areas you mentioned, artificial intelligence, 5G, telecom, space, each of these areas, which are high-tech areas, Japan will certainly be a major source of investment. If Japanese companies get used to you know, the frustrations of dealing with India, I mean, you have seen the high-speed rail project, for example, take longer than uh, anybody would have wanted it to. But, but that's always the problem with India. So you can't wish it away. But once you get used to the idea that things will take more time than what you'd like them to, the possibilities are immense. And in each of these areas, I think Japan will be the major provider for a variety of reasons. I mean, as I said, I think the, the strategic synergy between India and Japan is really something which is quite significant and can endure for a long period of time. I cannot see Japan losing interest in India or India losing interest in Japan. Right. And you also mentioned space, but I, I guess 5G, you know, telecom security and space is also an important area, not just for businesses, but also for um, future defense and security cooperation for the two countries. So I would like to move on to more in depth about the defense and security aspect of the relationship. So as you mentioned, in 2008, India and Japan signed a joint declaration on security cooperation. And since then, the bilateral security relationship has also been broadening to various domains, including maritime cooperation, defense equipment, as well as cyber capacity building and, and space, as we just discussed. So what are the drivers of this cooperation and in which domains do you think India hopes to expand cooperation with Japan? India would like cooperation across the board, but certainly maritime. Navy, Indian Navy, Japanese Navy uh, have already been working together and they will continue to work together. I had the opportunity of speaking to an organization in Tokyo called the Ship and Ocean Foundation. You probably have heard of them. My audience was essentially retired uh, admirals from the Coast Guard and Self-Defense Forces. And when I said to them, Japan and India have to be natural partners in maritime security and that we need to work together. And India is waiting for Japan uh, Coast Guard to be renamed the Japanese Navy. My audience stood up and clapped. I'm not joking. They actually stood up and clapped when I said, stop calling yourself the Coast Guard and call yourself the Navy. The Indian Navy and the Japanese Navy have to work together. And I think that's what is happening. In fact, I would go as far as saying that the core of Quad are Japan and India. Because really, it's the Japan, India, Malabar you know, exercises and the maritime exercises that the building bricks of Quad began there. The United States came in later. And Australia only recently. There's always a question in India about 
priorities of both the US and Australia. We are increasingly coming to the view that we don't have those questions with Japan. The core of Quad is really Japan and, and India. They have drawn the US and Australia into Quad rather than uh, the US drawing us into Quad. India is, is probably the only Quad members not to have a defense treaty, for instance, uh, with the United States. And how do you think uh, this would impact India's perception of the Quad? And do you think that India has expectations to enhance the security and military aspect of the Quad um, in the future? I would think as an Indian that Japan, in fact, may want a relationship with the United States that's more like India than India wanting a relationship more like Japan. But with time, Japan will become a far more independent nation. I began uh, by drawing your attention to the views of our national leaders of our national movement uh, who are holding up Japan as a symbol of Asian modernization and Asian power. Uh, I see Japan as a, once again be emerging as a very powerful modern Asian nation. At least from an Indian point of view, we would like to see Japan reassert its independent uh, kind of status in the world and not merely live under the umbrella of uh, the U.S. nuclear umbrella. So, you know, we have our independent nuclear capability. Japan should also have its independent nuclear capability. Continuing on the Quad theme, you and I were having a, a Twitter chat about the Quad, and, and you mentioned something that, that stuck with me, that the Quad is a geopolitical uh, entity, uh, such as it is, and it needs to widen its remit, you said, which I thought was a really good point. In the March 2021 Quad Summit, uh, they launched three working groups to tackle global challenges to widen this remit, one on COVID-19 vaccines and then climate change and then critical uh, and emerging technologies. A couple of questions in that. Uh, Do you think that this is enough to turn the Quad into something beyond the sort of geopolitical thing you mentioned in our Twitter chat? And what does India itself want from the Quad and from these working groups? I don't think there's enough uh, because after all, COVID is such an immediate challenge for uh, these four to address. Uh, Climate change is a distant challenge and not uh, likely to actually bring the Quad together. I don't see how much cooperation there can be between a a major carbon-emitting country, developing country like India, and highly developed economies like Australia, Japan, and the US. So neither climate change or COVID can really be building blocks of of a geoeconomic personality for Quad. I think what we need to do is look at the third one, which is uh, critical technologies, but go beyond critical technologies to regional infrastructure building. Uh, connectivity, shipbuilding, ports, um, you know, defense, cooperation. These are the substantial areas where we need the four countries to work together. A lot is possible. Each of us needs stuff that others are able to offer. Japan, as I said, is an aging country with a shrinking home market. It needs the Indian market to expand and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think Quad have to sit down and look at more substantial engagement, uh, going beyond worrying about immediate or long-term challenges like COVID or climate change. How do you think India would view more institutionalization uh, of Quad? Because that's been a, a refrain from coming occasionally from the United States, for example. Do you think India would be interested in that? Well, India is always interested in institutionalizing uh, Robert for a very simple reason that our diplomats like jobs. I'm a skeptic on that. You know, I don't think institutions should run ahead of intentions. And I think it's important for the four countries to actually have a solid agenda. 
before we create a fancy secretariat with fancy salaries and fancy jobs and immediately fill them with our diplomats. I can see what happened, for example, to you know, whether it's SARC or some of the other regional uh, organizations. Um, the organization takes over or the dynamics of the secretariat take over. There isn't adequate involvement of the political leadership. I think what Quad needs right now is a strong commitment at the level of political leaderships and domestic bureaucracies before we allow diplomats to enter the scene. China's increasing belligerence has been a, a key factor driving uh, India and, and Japan close together, as it has for, m- for many other countries in the region, of course. Do you think that these current mutual concerns can be the basis of a, a sustainable and reliable relationship between the two countries? Or do you think there will be, I mean, we talked about the geoeconomic synergies and so on, but how important, I suppose, the question is, do you think these concerns about China is uh, as, as a glue uh, for this bilateral relationship? In the 1990s, I used to tell friends in the US, in Japan, in Australia about the need for them to work with India. When all of them were investing more in China, when all of them were doing more trade with China, very few are willing to listen to an Indian talk about the importance of India. I thank President Xi Jinping and the current Chinese leadership for making all the rest of the world and particularly these four three countries uh, take India more seriously. I think from India's point of view, China has uh, done an enormous favor because it has forced countries that ought to have been looking at India to now look at India. And so there's no question that the China factor is important, but I see it actually as a positive contribution to bringing countries which have a lot in common. We are all democracies, but apart from being democracies, there are, as I keep saying, there are geoeconomic synergies. China is a labor abundant large economy. We are a labor-abundant large economy. We have huge manufacturing, labor-based manufacturing. But Australia has land, uh, not enough labor, requires markets. Japan has is aging, not enough land, requires markets. And the United States, of course, is absorbing a lot of Indian labor at the higher end. I think we have greater geoeconomic synergies with these three countries uh, than we have understood in the past. And therefore, I think these four countries can work together, even if China is, is less of a threat, which, which is unlikely to be. I have a final question around the Quad, especially the most recent developments around Afghanistan that could trigger a major change around India's strategic environment. For instance, um, ensuring peace and stability in U.S. troops withdrawal from Afghanistan was one of priority agenda for U.S. Secretary Blinken's visit to India in the end of July. But the situation has quickly changed and an emergence of another Taliban government is likely to create another instability and unpredictability near India's neighbors. So how does this new situation impact India's engagement in the Quad as a regional security environment becomes a greater concern? This is a big challenge for Quad because uh, I'm sure Japan and Australia are as concerned as we in India are. I think it is extremely important from America's point of view uh, to reach out to us and explain to us what exactly they have done, what they intend to do. I know for a fact that even in Europe and even in the UK, Uh, There's been considerable criticism of the actions taken by President Biden. Across many partner countries, uh, the U.S. uh, is being asked to explain its actions. Certainly, for the future of Quad, I think building trust uh, is extremely important on the part of the United States. And the U.S. has to be able to explain uh, to these three countries 
because if the US does with with China something that shocks us all like it has done with Afghanistan and Pakistan I mean where will it lead the challenge before the United States is to recover a sense of a lost uh, trust as a consequence of the recent developments in Afghanistan that's a very important point I think you you made on this topic now I would like to move on to the final set of Japan memo questions Do you have any book recommendations for listeners who wish to understand Japan? One of my regrets is that Indians don't know Japan very well. So I keep advising Indians to read Murakami to understand Japan. But I enjoy reading Murakami and I keep telling uh, people that you know you ought to read Murakami to get to understand modern Japan. There are a lot of books on India and Japan. Unfortunately, almost all of them look at the geopolitics, the international relations, foreign policy, defense security uh, just a couple of them look at the economic relations but not enough books which i could recommend to some someone to understand japan the most recent book that's just been published by a, a, an indian journalist pallavi ayer who used to live in tokyo pallavi has written some very interesting books she was earlier a correspondent uh, for an indian newspaper and television channel in beijing and has written an excellent introduction to china or Indians called smoke and mirrors but recently she's published a book called orienting an indian in japan which is about life in japan and i think for indians it's very important to understand life in japan because you know this business of defense security international relations all of that is what you know people like you and me talk about but ordinary indians watch hollywood they watch american television they watch friends you know they they watch only western programs they watch bbc you know they don't have a good understanding of japanese society so my two recommendations would be murakami and palavi ayers orienting interesting to hear you recommend uh, murakami uh, sanjay do you have a favorite uh, of, of his books yes indeed i think it's called south of the border west of the sun excellent so a good good recommendation for our listeners on japanese literature so we we like to spread our uh, interest wide here so it's good to have some literature on the uh, on the show the second question what do you think uh, people often get wrong about japan i mean i speak as an indian i think a lot of what we get wrong about japan um is that we don't understand its culture we think of japan as a country that is imitating the west Uh, a lot of exposure to japan western dress western ally i think many indians think of japan in the way they think about australia that's fundamentally wrong i liked prime minister modi on one of his visits to japan going to a neighborhood school and drawing attention to the kind of role that mothers play in the life of their children going from home to school and and introducing indian audiences to life in a small community to understand the roots of japanese culture uh, the only thing we many indians know is oh japan is also a buddhist country but you know that beyond that there, there isn't adequate grasp so getting to know japanese culture uh, you know it's an interesting combination of modernity and tradition uh, in my view is very important for us in india it's a very interesting point even talking about strategic kind of culture there's always this tension between you know japan as identity as more of a western country versus a state asian country rooting from its own history 
Thank you, Sanjaya, and thank you for listening to episode three of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Tier program and the IISS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are active sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find us at Robert Allen Ward. At Yuka Koshino and at Baru Garu One. Thanks again, and see you next time.